Well, church, this morning as we go to God's Word, if you've noticed by looking in your bulletin, we are taking a break from the book of Acts this morning. I mean, after all, we've been in it for a year. We've taken a couple of small breaks, but we're taking another break this morning between the second and third missionary journey of the Apostle Paul. We're, we're taking a break. And the reason we're doing it is, is I want us to have some time to get a better grasp on Paul's motivation for ministry. Like, like, like what's driving the Apostle Paul? I mean, few people in the history of the church have suffered like Paul has suffered, Right? I mean, as we've already seen, he's endured both physical and emotional suffering. All for the sake of the gospel. Stoned and left for dead. Ruthlessly beaten and imprisoned. Viciously denounced, misrepresented, and openly rejected by the very people that he cares about the most. His fellow Jews. He cares about them deeply. Let's be honest, by the, by the time that Paul concludes his second missionary journey in chapter 18, he should be quitting the ministry for good. He, he, he should be pivoting to another ministry role, right? I mean, after everything he's gone through, doesn't he deserve to take a break? Not busy laying the groundwork for a third missionary journey, leaving Priscilla and Aquila behind that he might go back and return. So what drives him? What what, what keeps him moving forward when nobody, nobody would fault him for simply walking away? See, I'm asking this. Because he's your pastor, I want it. I need that. And I'm convinced that you as a Christian need the very same thing. That this isn't merely a question for those who lead in ministry. This this is a question we're pursuing for every single Christian. Yet as I drilled into the question this week, that the thing I discovered and was confronted by was the fact that my greatest need as a Christian, the greatest, my greatest need as a minister of the gospel, your greatest need as a Christian is not more knowledge. It's not more giftedness. It's not more influence. And it's not more power in the social realm but it's a greater love for Jesus. That's the need. Because apart from a heart that is truly captivated by the supremacy of Christ in all things, I will do everything in my power to avoid the very environment in which I I encounter my greatest intimacy with Christ. See, see, what is the environment in which we find greatest intimacy with Christ? We see it today in verse 10. It's suffering for Christ. Yet the second I raise that, I need to be clear what I'm not saying. 
I'm not saying that in and of itself, suffering is praiseworthy. That's not what I'm saying. Sometimes our suffering is the result of our foolish and sinful actions. And we have to admit that. We did things that were dumb and were reaping consequences. Now, there can be grace in that. At the same time, when we talk about suffering, often also suffering we endure in life is the result of other people's sinful actions against us. We, we, endure, we endure countless kinds of sin in our life, ranging from small things to monumental things. Abuse in the home. There, there's all kinds of suffering. And, and so let me be clear, I'm not, I'm not saying that any and all suffering is just good in and of itself. So suffering in and of itself is not intrinsically good. Rather what I'm saying is that suffering for Christ deepens our intimacy with Christ when, keyword, when Christ is our greatest joy and treasure. Notice, what, what, what's, what's the key? What, what's the key that turns suffering for Christ into intimacy with Christ? The key without which our suffering, even for Christ, is going to spiral into self-pity and bitterness and depression. See, I'm saying you can suffer for Christ and you can suffer poorly and you can end up in a very bad place in your life if you don't have the key. What's the key? It's a steadfast conviction that the cost of following Christ is incomparable to the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ our Lord. The cost of following Christ, whatever the cost, the cost is connected to following Christ. It's incomparable to the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ our Lord. That's what we see in the text today. So as we go to the text, we're going to break it into three pieces. The danger of self-confidence that Paul raises in verses 1 through 7. The infinite worth of Jesus Christ in verses 8 through 9. And verses 10 through 11, the apostles aim in all things. So let's begin. Let's look at the problem that Paul is raising and he's concerned about with this church in Philippi. A church that we just saw a couple chapters ago, right? Lydia, demon-possessed slave girl, centurion, or the, the should say the jailer. So let's go to the problem, verses one through three. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write you the same thing is no trouble to me. It's not a problem to repeat myself. It's no trouble. Also, it's safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For, for we are the circumcision who worship God, who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. So, so right out of the gate, what, what, what's Paul focused on? What's he trying to say? What, what's moving him to write this? He's motivated by two things. He's motiva- motivated by the Philippians' joy. He wants them to have joy in Jesus Christ. And number two, he is out for their safety as Christians. Not an ounce of legalism in this. 
He wants them to find their highest joy in their pursuit of Jesus Christ and he wants to ensure that they're going to remain safely anchored in the harbor of the gospel rather than being tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. And what specific dangers does Paul have in mind here? It's the temptation to pursue a Jesus and instead of a Jesus alone Christian life. We we use those two terms in Acts chapter 15. A Jesus and or a Jesus alone Christian life. Notice the danger that we see in the text here. It's not an outright denial of Jesus Christ. That's not what Paul is, is concerned about. He's not concerned about people denying Jesus Christ, but it's, it's that subtle temptation to add human accomplishment, law-keeping, obedience to the gospel of Jesus Christ. The finished work. That's Jesus and adding anything on top of Jesus for our right standing with God. He's fighting back against Jesus and Christianity. As we go here, Paul could have addressed this any number of ways. I mean, I mean, he could have just circled back and reread the letter from Acts chapter 15, right? This is our decision. This is what you don't have to do. He didn't do that. He, he also doesn't lay the, the heavyweight theological argument that he lays down in the book of Galatians. He doesn't go there either. Ra- rather, here in Philippians, he chooses to illustrate illustrate the utter foolishness of trusting in or even worse boasting in anything but the gospel of Jesus Christ and he does it in the most ostentatious way let's go to verses 4 through 7 though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also if anyone else thinks he has any reason for confidence in the flesh I have more Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Let's stop there. What I want you to see Paul's doing here is he's saying, let me just play by their rules for a minute. Philippian church is being tempted or pressured by people who want to add law-keeping, according to Moses, to their salvation. And he's like, all right, let me play by their rules. I want to show you how utterly stupid it is to measure yourself by the law. This is a nonsensical argument. He's saying anything you can do, I can do better. I can do anything better than you. That's what he's saying. He's saying that they're they're amateurs compared to me. They're amateurs. According to their own rules, I have every reason to put confidence in the flesh as a Jew. Just, Just let me show you my religious trophies. Let me pull out my little sash with all my merit badges. I got every one. I'm not just a full blooded Israelite, I'm a Benjamite. Father Jacob's favorite son next to Joseph. You want to talk about circumcision? Mine is in perfect conformity with the law of Moses. Leviticus chapter 12, 3, eighth day. But man, I'm just getting warmed up. You want to talk about obedience to the law? You want to talk about law keeping? I didn't just learn the law in my local synagogue. I just didn't hang around the local rabbi, pick up a couple things along the way. 
I studied the law of Moses under the people who adhere to the strictest observance of the law. You know those guys called the Pharisees? And as a Pharisee, I was all in. I was all in. I wasn't, I wasn't a two-faced hypocrite. I wasn't trying to play both sides of the fence. No one was more zealous for the law than me. That's what he's saying. Like, like I actively persecuted the church when what was everybody else doing? They were standing around trying to figure out what to do. I was the guy who took up the charge. I was the one who led the charge. No one was more zealous than I was. Talk about zeal for the law. But do you want to talk about having confidence in the flesh? You want to talk about righteousness under the law? I was faultless. I was faultless in regard to my public record of moral performance. It was impeccable. Dude, I know how to apply the law in ways that most people have never even considered. They never even knew they existed. And I have categories. So there you go. I've played by their rules. I've won. I have every trophy. I have everything a person could ever collect. I have every reason to put confidence in my flesh. But guess what? It's a stupid game. That's the argument. It's stupid. It wasn't getting me any closer to God. In fact, my stupid obsession with my performance was utterly blinding me to my desperate need for Jesus Christ. Verse 7, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. We're getting here to the heart of the gospel. What is the gospel? What's the essence of the gospel? It's abandoning any hope in human works, in human achievement, and embracing Jesus Christ as my only hope. Jesus alone. Jesus Christ as my only hope. In fact, we see this two ways here in verse seven. Number one, Paul Paul employs some imagery here in the text. It's accounting imagery of 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 an accountant ledger. Maybe now it's QuickBooks. On one side of the ledger is gain, it's profit. On the other side of the ledger is loss. And on the gain side, he he starts adding up all of the gain. Everything he just listed, he, he, he adds it all up. Nothing excluded, nothing admitted, not forgetting a single thing. He, he lays it all down the column. Everything he could possibly list is listed. He grabs his pencil and he starts working down the column. He draws a line underneath. And he writes one word at the bottom. He doesn't write a number. He just writes loss. It's loss. In light of Jesus Christ, the uncompromising and devastating answer to everything he's ever accomplished in his religious life Loss. Secondly, 
The verb count here in verse seven in the Greek is in what's called the perfect tense. Perfect. It's, it's a past action with continuing results. It's done. It's settled. It's over. I've counted it loss. He, he's not going to try to go back to his books and smuggle some of the loss back into the game column. He's not going to be trying to keep pulling figures over, pulling works over into the game column. He's like, no, I've considered it. It's done. It's loss. That's because it's impossible to improve upon or add a single treasure to the gain column when the gain column has the name Jesus Christ. There's nothing you can add. There's nothing to improve upon. There's no plus after the A. Everything is there in Jesus See, Paul's making it crystal clear that faith in Jesus is not the ultimate reward on the final rung of human self-achievement. No, not the least bit. No, no, in this text here, he has chopped the ladder to pieces and he's burnt it in a bonfire along with every single trophy he's ever had. Because what's he trying to do? He's trying to encourage his listeners to value Jesus Christ. Yet Paul's not content to dwell on the past. That's just the starting point. He quickly turns to the present using the very same accounting imagery. Verse 8. Indeed I count. The count here in verse 8 Present tense. Present tense. I've counted everything a loss. Everything that I was, everything I accomplished, all of that loss. Now, what, how, do I, how do I walk through the present? Everything today I count as a loss for the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and I count them as rubbish. See, see, when Paul says, I count everything a loss in verse 8, he's adding the devastating qualification to his argument that he's expanding the loss category to include absolutely everything in life that exists in the present and in the future, along with the past that he already addressed. He's saying there's nothing excluded that cannot go in the loss column. See, even though his initial focus was on religious self-advancement and works-based righteousness, that's where he began, he's now expanded the list to include things that are honorable and just and pure and commendable, to use his words in Philippians 4.8. Everything. Everything in life. Just think like, like what, what does everything include in life if you use the word everything? What does it leave out? But why? Why does Paul go out of his way to lump even the good things that God commends? Good things. Marriage, family, friendship, employment, physical health. Effective ministry, 
Like, like why, does he, why, does he, why does he lump them all into the lost category? A category that was initially defined as works-based righteousness. He lumps it all into there. I think it's because these are the very things that can captivate our affections and blind us to the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ our Lord. What was the problem with the Israelites? They came into the land, God said, I'm going to give you houses you didn't build, cisterns you didn't dig, fields you didn't plant, right? And he even warned them before they went in. He's like, don't, when you get there, don't say, don't say that you were strong and smart and wise and you were the one who attained this for yourself. They were good things. They were gifts from God. But then once they had achieved them, God got cut out of the picture. See, see, good things in life can tempt us to cling to and obsess over the good but inferior pleasures of this world instead of finding our greatest pleasure and our joy in Jesus Christ, in our gain of one great treasure. So don't hear me say things in this world aren't good at all. See, see, when Paul uses the term surpassing worth, he's pointing us to the biblical truth that that knowing Jesus Christ far surpasses not not just anything in this world, but the combined value of everything you could ever get in this world. That's surpassing worth. I mean, I mean you, you, you get the balance scales, the old school balance scales, right? You put them out there and you put everything in the world on one end. Everything you can possibly ever think of in this world. Put it on that end and put Jesus on the other alone. Jesus and nothing but Jesus. And it's weightless. That's what Paul's saying. But, but, but it's kind of Christianity that very few people are ever even challenged to to comprehend in their life. But it's what's driving Paul. See, that's why we must be willing to lose all things and count them a loss if they become a barrier to our pursuit of Jesus Christ. Matthew chapter 13, starting in verse 44, Jesus' own words. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field when a man found it. And he covered it up, and then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has, and he buys the field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had, and he bought it. Now notice the similarity and the differences in these two parables. One guy was looking, one guy wasn't looking. Right? Guy in the field stumbles on it. 
The other guy, he's a pearl merchant and he finds the pearl of great price. One is looking, one isn't looking. That describes pretty much everybody in life. There are those people that are looking for answers and those people who aren't looking for answers. But at some point in time, they are confronted with, they run into Jesus Christ. They see him for who he truly is. They recognize the gospel. And what is the response to sell everything? Abandon hope in everything that we've had and embrace the one great treasure. Both of them respond the same way. See, Jesus is saying you can't, you can't have it two ways. You can't play both sides of the fence. You, you can't just add me into your life like another little, like another little you know, badge on your letterman's jacket in high school. You can't just just add me like another plaque or diploma on your wall of self-achievement. You can't just do that. But, but, But even more, the kind of knowledge and treasure that Paul is talking about here is so much more than a basic grasp of historical facts. It's a kind of knowledge that comes from close contact with a person. Knowledge throughout God's word is typically personal and intimate. When God says, I know them, it's not that God just has the knowledge about them, he's omniscient. It's a statement of a personal relationship. And for Paul here, What is this relationship? Who is it with? It's with the same person who's been given the name above every other name, the one whom before every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and shall confess every tongue that he is Lord to the glory of the Father and that is Jesus Christ. And see, it's for this person, not a religious system, not a philosophical approach to life, not not for an institution. It's for this person whom Paul has experienced that he is willing to count all things a loss. It's for the person. Verse 8 again, Indeed, I count everything a loss. Past, present, future. Because of the surpassing worth, that's the reason of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and account them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. Now, now that he's moved forward, one more argument. What has he added in here? Paul's not saying, he's not talking about the theoretical possibility of losing everything. He's not just saying, I'm willing to if it happens. He's saying, I've lost it all. I got nothing in reserve. I've lost it all. My newfound treasure in Jesus Christ has cost me everything. Yet he's not devastated by this loss. He's not devastated by it. He looks back at his ledger and he says, he writes another word next to the loss. Just to remind him. And that word is rubbish. Literally, dung, excrement. That's the word. Everything. It's worth at this point to quote 
some insight from J.I. Packer on this when he says this. When Paul says that he counts these things as rubbish or dung, he does not merely mean that he does not think of them as having any value. He's not saying he doesn't merely think of them as not having any value. But also, but also that he does not live with them constantly on his mind. He doesn't have this list of everything that he's given up and done for God on his mind constantly. All the same, God, I've done all these things. I've done all these things. He goes on to say, after all, what normal person spends his time nostalgically dreaming of manure? put it maybe even modern parlance what normal person goes around nostalgically dreaming or thinking about what they have flushed down the toilet that's the imagery Paul's using yet this is in effect what many of us do in our losses for the sake of Christ he goes on to say exposing how little we have in the way of true knowledge of God and grasp of the true value of Christ Now, those are heavy words. But those are Paul's words. All things rubbish. I don't, I don't run around dragging my list of accomplishments. I don't go dragging my, my list of pains and agonies and sufferings. They're loss. No. No, I focus on the treasure that I've received in Christ. You see how that changes your worldview? See, Ennis Packer helps us see. The Paul's word choice not only stresses the force of and totality of Paul's renunciation. And it's forceful. Yeah, it's, but, but it's so much more. It's, it's more. The term rubbish and excrement is the only word that can come close to illustrating the infinite gulf and the insurmountable difference between the surpassing worth of Jesus Christ and anything that this world, everything this world has to offer. It's the only word that comes close to saying this is what it means to truly treasure Christ, his supreme worth, when I can think of everything else, even the greatest wonderful things that God gives in this life. Compared to Christ, that is what they are. That's his argument. If his singular goal is to gain Christ, then anything that impedes his pursuit must be utterly rejected. So what does it really mean to gain Christ? What is it to gain Christ? Verse 9. It means to be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness of God that depends on faith. So you see, to gain Christ is, is to be found in him, but how does that happen? Even the words are great, like found in him. Does that just like rip away any, any even possibility of accomplishment? I'm found in him. 
negatively. What does Paul say? It's not, it's not an exercise in righteous living. It's not a matter of religious self-advancement. It's not a matter of establishing personal merit before God. You are not found in God like that. No, what is it? Gaining Christ is a matter of receiving righteousness from God through faith in Jesus Christ. That is the essence of the gospel. That's why it's so glorious. As we shared together in our reading earlier today in Romans chapter 3, I'll pick it up in verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law. Apart from law keeping Though, though he makes it very clear, the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The whole Old Testament tells us the time is coming. It's coming. What is the righteousness? The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there's no distinction. Why is there no distinction? For all have, pardon me, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That has been his argument in Romans chapter 1 starting in verse 18 through Romans chapter 3 verse 20. All have sinned. Jew, Gentile, everyone, everyone fallen short of the glory of God. Why does everybody need the gospel of Jesus Christ? Because everybody is in the same place. They are in a position of need. And they're justified by his grace as a gift to the redemption that's in Jesus Christ. A gift that he's already stated is received through faith. This is why Paul considers his religious accomplishments as dung. And it's, and it's why he's doing everything he can to guard the Philippian church from adding the law of Moses or anything else. Anything else to the gospel. So see, see, righteousness and intimacy before God, your relationship with God is never earned. Never earned. It's received as a gift through faith in Jesus Christ. But gaining Christ isn't just gaining a new status. It's gaining a new relationship with Jesus Christ himself. A new relationship that for Paul has totally eclipsed everything else in his life. It's a person that drives Paul. It's a person. Yet where does Paul find his deepest intimacy with the person of Christ? Is it in the quiet seclusion of his prayer closet? Is it in the self-denial of fasting? Is it in the soaring ecstasy of supernatural visions? I mean, after all, we know Paul is a man of prayer. We know that Paul undertakes the fasting. We know that Paul has had visions. He's had all of these things. But that's not what he tells us in the text where he finds his deepest intimacy with Christ. Not to say that those don't increase our intimacy with Christ. 
No, in the text here, he expects to find his greatest intimacy with Christ in the agony of suffering for Christ. This, this is what drives Paul in all of his ministry and his suffering, and it's why he's going back for a third helping in the next chapter of Acts. Verse 10 of Philippians chapter 3, that I might know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. The word share is the same word that's been used all the way through the book of Philippians. It's the Greek word koinonia that we often kind of think of as, you know, simple church fellowship, koinonia gathering. And it is, I mean, fellowship, yes. But when Paul has in mind fellowship with Christ, he uses the very same word to talk about participating with Christ in his suffering. Verse 11, that by any means possible I might attain the resurrection of the dead. See, how in the world can Paul utter these words? Much more than record them for the Philippian church. I mean, it can sound like he's like a masochist. It can sound like he's a madman. Even more, just in case you didn't know it's coming. He expects every Christian to take on the same mindset. Verse 15, let those of us who are mature think this way, and if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that to you also. He, he, he's, saying, he's saying, like, this isn't just about me. I'm using me as the example, but I want you to follow the example. And if you think that I'm blowing smoke, you're wrong. So see, on the one hand, Paul sees something that many of us struggle to recognize. It is that Jesus actually is the greatest treasure in the universe. That's what he is. And if he's the greatest treasure, then we should do anything necessary it takes to spread a passion for his supremacy in all things. Whatever it takes, whatever it takes in my life to enjoy him more. If he's the greatest treasure, I just want to experience more of the treasure. So you see, Paul is not saying pursue pain for pain's sake. Oh my gosh, no, that is not what he's doing. He's not an ascetic. He's not in a dark corner somehow, somewhere beating himself with a whip. No, that's not Paul. No, no, he's calling us to do what he does, to willingly endure and to choose suffering for the sake of Christ. The qualification is key. Suffering for the sake of Christ because it helps us experience his power and the all-satisfying joy of his surpassing worth. And on the other hand, he wants us to know it's impossible to know the true power of God, which he calls here the power of his resurrection without actively participating in those sufferings. See, when we suffer for him, we are sharing his sufferings with him. 
Not in a salvific way. But we experience Christ. We experience his power. In suffering in a way that we will not experience his power in other areas of our life. And praise God by Paul's example, his entire life is not suffering. He has much. But he has many moments of glorious fellowship and ministry and life with people at the same time. But let's pick it up in 2 Corinthians 1, starting in verse 8, speaking of the suffering. Paul says, For we don't want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Yeah, that's how far down Paul got. Despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we'd received a sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Paul says God was doing something in that. He's honest. It wasn't easy. See, in participating in the sufferings of Christ isn't saying you're going to get this force field and you're going to be suffering but not really suffering. That's not what he says. He says, like, no, no, we were, we were like at the point of death. We were ready to die. And God did it. It wasn't an accident. God did it. And it was so we wouldn't rely on ourselves. We would find and the power of God active and present in our life. We wouldn't have experienced had it not been for the fact that God took us so far. We never would have experienced it. Again, what is the key that turns suffering for Christ into intimacy with Christ? The key without which our suffering for Christ will spiral. It will spiral into self-pity and bitterness and depression. If we don't have this, see, it's, it's recognizing the cost of following Christ is incomparable to the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ. See, I've got to confess at this stage if you think that I'm just kind of like looking at everybody and telling you you got to work harder, try harder, you stink at being a Christian, I don't measure up to this call like I ought to. I struggle. My vision of Christ is easily obscured. It is. I'm not immune from that. My, my ideas about ministry success can often be disconnected from God's call to ministry sacrifice. All, all, too, wishing, all, all too often I wish that my ministry life would be easy and that I could meet everyone's expectations and that everyone would be steadily growing in their faith in Jesus Christ and their sanctification would be growing leaps and bounds and that everybody was passionate about evangelism. Even more. I get hurt a lot easier than I'd like to admit. It can be slow to push through the hard work of reconciliation. So, so in all of this, 
This message has been on me all week. But I can also tell you that I have grown far closer to Jesus and experienced more of his power in the midst in the midst of my ministry hardships and suffering than I have in the midst of ministry ease. I can I can say that. More more than once God has taken me well past my personal strength. And in each and every instance, after a whole lot of floundering in the flesh, just ask my wife. After that, I have found his sufficiency in my weakness and in my brokenness and had the opportunity to experience his gentle sweetness in a pain that I wouldn't have experienced in the middle of ministry success. So don't hear that this is some easy thing we're pursuing. Oh, let me go find some suffering to find Christ. He's talking about willingness. When it comes to recognize what is at stake. See, in all this, I struggle just like every other Christian. And and for those for those who have been deeply wounded in the church, in your direct service to the gospel, whether inside or outside the church. You you really need to know two simple things. One, in your suffering, God did not abandon you. It wasn't a sign that God abandoned you. And the second thing is, is that even if you're struggling with that pain to this very day, that it can still be used for a glorious purpose if you submit it to the good and sovereign lordship of Jesus Christ. See, his power and his presence are still available even if your suffering is something in the distant past. Power is still available today. And here's the greatest part. Just like your salvation... You don't have to do anything to earn it. You don't have to do anything to earn it. You just need to come to Jesus the same way you came to Jesus the first time you ever came to him. And that is in empty-handed faith. Empty-handed faith, looking to him for everything and anything that you could possibly, possibly need. Let's close in a word of prayer.